just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I'm talking to Evie Clayton about their journey to getting a diagnosis of endometriosis, which is definitely full of twists and turns. In this episode, Evie talks us through the years of their symptoms being dismissed, an eventful few months with an ear, nose and throat specialist, how they finally got a diagnosis and the side effects that came with that surgery, why they had to pull out of circus school, and Evie gives an insight into being non-binary and navigating the health system. I could have chatted to Evie for hours, so who knows, maybe we will have to get them back. Welcome to That's So Chronic. Now, I'm so excited to chat to you today because you are a synthetic chemist, a science communicator, and a circus artist. In terms of circus, you specialize in aerial rope and handstands. And since receiving the Midsummer Pathways mentorship program, you've been specializing more in like a dramaturg, creative development sort of role, which is especially awesome because I was also reading on your bio online that you like to take the same critical thinking and curiosity to science and circus, which is so cool. And I'm so excited to chat to you today, like a real life scientist. (laughs) Yep, that's right. I mostly use my science for like online activism and also like actually just straight up helping myself and my communities with access to things because as you well know definitely within the chronic illness and disability communities there's a lot of gatekeeping and medical negligence and if you can just walk in and be like oh I know these correct scientific terms for these things it makes a big difference and then that's also definitely the same in the trans community so like you kind of need honorary science degrees to access things both in terms of disability and transness And luckily, my honorary science degree is also like, I also have a real science degree. (laughs) Yes. And in amongst all of this, you also have a diagnosis of endometriosis, which we're going to chat a little bit more about today. Yeah. So I didn't get my endo diagnosis until way after finishing my science degree, despite the fact that uh, like, obviously I'd had symptoms that whole time because endo is not not a thing that comes on spontaneously. Yeah. It took the standard over 10 years to get my diagnosis from when my symptoms first started. Should we go all the way back to the beginning? Mm-hmm. When you're growing up, you're hitting puberty, started getting your period. Did you have symptoms back then when all of that was starting for you? So I have a somewhat atypical starting place for, for my endo symptoms. That said, who actually really knows if it is genuinely atypical or if it's just that we have these really strongly stereotyped views of what endometriosis looks like. Yeah. Um, So in my case, I actually had the most beautifully chill, calm periods in the world for like the first, I don't know, three or four years, however long it was. I had friends who who would sometimes have days off school because of their their cramps. Um, My sister, I'd come home from school and she'd be on the couch hot water bottle I look back on it now and in hindsight I'm like okay it could actually just have been that I was kind of good at dealing with the level of cramps that I had then yeah or it could really just be that my my periods were like just magically very nice I had a 31 day cycle like on the dot every time yeah I had pretty light bleeding so like just all of the things that can be bad about periods mine were like just actually pretty chill wow and then I went on the pill. Uh, I was going to say, when did all of this start to change? Yeah. Uh, I went on the pill when I was, uh, must have been 18. I think I'd just finished high school and I had a long-term 
serious boyfriend and I genuinely just thought it was like the the responsible thing to do when you start being sexually active you go on the pill to make sure that you definitely definitely can't get pregnant yeah and you know the list of like side effects that you get told the, the common things that can go wrong when you go on the pill uh all of them 100% all the things that like obviously not organ failure and stuff like that the, the really huge and incredibly rare side effects but like I was spotting, I was, I basically bled for like three months solid. I had an increase in my migraines, which I've also had my whole life. And now I'm like, oh, that's also a chronic illness that I've had my entire life. But I didn't really think of it in those terms until accepting my endo. And like skin problems and weight fluctuations and my moods were all over the place. I never had like PMS before the pill, but I was like spontaneously crying or, or screaming at my friends for things everything was just yeah completely fucked yeah and so when did you start to go oh maybe I should not be on the pill anymore or investigate these symptoms a bit um so the worst part was I went on the pill and then my long-term like lifelong GP went on sabbatical oh okay and I thought because this is the way that they they that like doctors tell you is that you don't just go off the pill you have to come back and talk to us if you want to go off it or change pill. Yeah. Which is reasonable advice, but like maybe not in this specific context where then your GP goes on sabbatical. And I'd also been told that, you know, it might take a couple of months for things to settle down. So I was kind of in this place of one, not being able to go back to see my doctor. Yeah. And two, thinking that I had to just wait for everything to settle down. And after three months of, as I say, constant bleeding and all of the other things that were happening at the same time, I finally, I think maybe a, a friend or, or my mum or someone convinced me to go and see the nurse at, at my at my doctor's clinic. And that nurse happened to be a school friend's mum. And she's like, just one of those really good mum mums, yeah, like nice. really comforting. And I tearily told her about all the things that were happening. And she was like, oh, honey, no, you can just stop. Just stop <laughs> taking it. It's okay. Which was a big relief, yeah. uh, except that then when things started to like, go back to, I don't know, something approximating normal, they they didn't go back to my normal. Yeah. Like I stopped constantly bleeding. I stopped having outrageous mood swings, but my previously 31-day cycle never went back to being like reliable cycle and my previously mild cramps never came back to being mild. They just kept – I. I at that time I was having like maybe one out of five periods would be catastrophically painful and then the rest were like kind of more painful than they used to be but close enough to normal-ish that I could kind of ignore it. And during this time, so after going off the pill, is that when you found circus and you started training a bit more? No, long way off. Oh, Um, okay. So I, um, the, the pill, all of that, that happened in the gap year between high school and leaving my hometown to move to Perth to go to uni. Right. Yeah. So I, I, t- I turned 19, moved to Perth, away from home, no family. I think I had once spoken to my doctor since the, since going off the pill and they were like, yep, yeah, it, it should all just go. It'll, it'll come out in the wash. It'll go back to normal eventually. It was maybe six months later that I moved to Perth. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have my own GP anymore. Okay. Yeah. I was living alone and starting uni. And so definitely all of the, like what I now realized was endo. And at the time I just was like, Oh, my periods, all that stuff kind of got pushed to the side. Cause there was lots of other life things happening. Yeah. And then I got to Perth and was living in a studio apartment by myself. Very, very lucky to have found a studio apartment around the corner from my uni that I could afford. Yeah. Like, yeah, just absurdly lucky for a student. Yeah. And I was carrying my groceries home and realized that I was just like genuinely the most feeble person I knew. I was not able to carry my tiny amount of groceries home without having to stop and like put them down repeatedly. And the thing that really cinched it was. I couldn't, I drank a lot of milk at the time. Okay. And I couldn't carry home a two litre bottle of milk. I couldn't carry that up my stairs. And that meant going to the shops more often than I wanted to because it's only two litres of milk. And if I bought a one litre bottle, even from a one litre bottle, I couldn't pour the first glass because lifting a one litre bottle was too much for me. I had to hold it into my body, like using my arms 
and cradling it and like bend my whole body over to get the first glass of milk out. As a circus artist and you specialize in aerial rope, you <laughs> must look back at this moment and just think, yeah. what the heck? I also, my other like go-to of how to describe just how weak I was at the time was that when I was drinking uh, from a pint glass, if I, if I was having a beer, I had to leave it sitting on the table and like pivot it so that I could drink from it because I couldn't lift a pint glass with two hands. Yeah. And so I had a friend who was studying sports science and I went to them and was like, I am very, very weak. What do I do? Uh, and they uh, also worked at the, the gym at the uni and they used to sneak me in after hours um, and do like little private training sessions. And what we discovered was that I, I could not even lift the smallest, tiniest little weights that were in the like the, like accessories section. Yeah. I couldn't lift them. Uh, but if you found something that I could do, I could do it for hours. I had like okay. incredible okay. stamina, but just no strength. And so I ended up going to the gym like multiple hours a day, just trying to build the like fundamental strength that actually most people have just by existing and doing things but apparently I'd spent my entire like teen years just avoiding doing anything physical and so I was yeah very very weak and then I started slowly 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 building up tiny little bits of strength until eventually I thought I was hot shit I was like <laughs> wow I go to the gym all the time I'm so strong I yeah I'm so strong and capable and this is great and I uh discovered parkour and I went and did my first parkour class and then I realized I was not, <laughs> I was not very strong. I set my first parkour like goal that was to get through the whole warm up without having to like stop and shake everything out. Yeah. That was it. it, was just get through the warm up. And so during this time, your periods are still not back to the idyllic ones that they once were. Did you go and see a doctor about this at all? Yeah. Uh, yes. So that's right. My my periods, like, yeah, they, they had gone back to, like, nowhere near as bad as they were on the pill. And then I guess over the course of maybe three or four years, they were getting more and more severe. And okay. uh, it was more often that they would be bad. Yeah. And so I think the, the first opportunity I got to go and see a doctor, and I, I was going to the, the doctors at the the uni because I assumed that like obviously doctors at a university there's no reason to assume that they would not be good at their jobs yeah um (laughs) I feel so I can't laugh at the moment without coughing with a stupid (laughs) so I'm like I just want to laugh but I'm like (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that yeah so like I I would go and see the doctor about you know some other thing I needed a script or a yeah. medical certificate or something and I'd be like oh yeah by the way also I just wanted to flag this thing of my periods used to be great and then I went on the pill and then they're not great now and every single time I mentioned it I would get some version of periods are just like that they're painful you you know you sh- you just got to put up with it or well you can go on the pill if you like. And I'm like, no, that's the thing that caused it. And they would never, ever acknowledge that there was any possibility that it was the pill that had caused this thing. Like they just always acted as though they must've always been like that. And you're just imagining it. Or like, I I could never get a doctor to acknowledge it. Even, even eventually when I did start to use the word endometriosis and be like, I think I might have this, no one would acknowledge that it could have been the, the pill that not, not caused it, but that uh, caused the onset of the symptoms. Yeah. I think there were at the time seven different doctors at at the uni clinic and I saw every single one of them and not one of them would even acknowledge that what I was I was like trying to explain to them how I have a high pain tolerance and even still like yeah. these, I'm getting period symptoms that are completely debilitating. I think I ended up like burning the lining of my stomach from taking too much ibuprofen. Wow. And I ended up having to get on a, a wait list to see a gastroenterologist because my stomach lining was so bad that I couldn't even drink water without <gasps> either throwing up or just feeling very, very sick and in pain. It just, it blows my mind that like you're presenting with these symptoms and they're like, oh, well, let's just help the too much ibuprofen and send you to a gastroenterologist rather than look at why you're even taking the ibuprofen in the first place. Exactly. Like 
it took two years before I got a, an appointment with the gastroenterologist, by which time I'd stopped taking ibuprofen as much as I had been. And so I didn't need to see them anymore, but was like, okay, but still no one's listening about my periods, which is the, the main problem. Yeah. And because of a whole lot of like combination feelings between like latent transgender feeling dysphoria stuff and then also some sort of like internalized misogyny stuff that was going on I really felt uncomfortable speaking to anyone other than my doctors about how bad my periods were not because I was uncomfortable talking about periods I was I've always been the person that'll be like oh Evie what's up oh, I've got my period like yeah 100% chill about talking about periods that even though I was always really comfortable mm-hmm. like acknowledging that I had periods that I had this sort of thought in my head that if I if I acknowledged that my periods caused me to not be able to do things sometimes or that it made it more difficult to do things that that, that would play into the, the misogynistic idea that that women and people who menstruate are like less capable of doing things because of periods. So it took a really long time before I would mention to uh, like friends or, or in social situations that I had really bad cramps and really bad menstrual symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I finally did start to acknowledge it, that's how I found out about endometriosis was because I eventually, I think I posted a big vent on Facebook, something where I was like talking about how bad things had gotten and how doctors were still not listening to me. And um, a friend of mine who was a med student at the time, was like, hey, have you heard of endometriosis? Wow. And I hadn't. Um, and I did a bunch of Googling and uh, this is where science degree comes in handy, being able to like vet the information that's out there yeah. because the info on endo that's on the internet is like, oh, at least 50% just like anywhere from, oh, look, I can see why you'd word it that way, but it's not technically correct to just straight up false information. <sighs> Wow. And yeah, so I like did a little bit of my own research and basically just went, no, thank you. I don't want to have that. So I'll just stay in denial for a little while. Okay. And then you stay in denial (laughs) for a little bit of time, but you've done this sort of Googling and researching and you think it might be endometriosis. When in this timeline did a doctor start to take you seriously then and believe you that this is what it could be? As I say, I'd I'd seen every single doctor at the at the clinic at uni mm-hmm. I kind of at this point I think I'd been living in in Perth for maybe four or five years yeah and it, I kind of was like well I should probably find a, a good doctor that I can have as my own personal GP and not just go to the clinic at uni yeah but somewhere between like being a poor student and not being able to afford not only the fees of a doctor but the process of vetting and finding a good doctor yeah Um, so it was like time poor and money poor yeah and so I was sort of stuck in this between the rock and hard place of I know that in order to find someone who will actually listen to me I need to find someone with some specialization or you know just at least a really good doctor that isn't one of the dickheads from the uni clinic but also not really knowing where to start especially living in in a city where I didn't have any any family yeah and I had friends who'd lived in Perth their whole lives and had their own doctors, but not necessarily anyone who had similar experiences to what I was going through. Yeah. And I, I think that actually the first doctor who ever validated my experiences, not necessarily believed, not necessarily said anything about endo, mm-hmm. but it was actually because of my migraines, which got a lot worse during my honours year, just because stress and spending like 100% of your time looking at things directly in front of your face and and eye strain and lack of sleep and Mm -hmm. you know all the things that happen when you're doing a postgraduate degree and I wasn't really fussed about how my migraines had gotten more frequent like it wasn't that unusual for me to experience more migraines with more stress but my honours supervisor basically like was like what the fuck you you this is not normal. You should go to a doctor about it. Oh, wow. And which is really interesting because he was, he's like the furthest thing from a compassionate person. He was 
very awkward man but was like no you need to go to a doctor and it's always really confronting when it's somebody like that that says to you hey yeah, you need to like, go and sort this shit out yeah um and the, the PhD student in my lab was on the same page was like yeah you really should and he was really compassionate and lovely but yeah it's very very interesting I kind of felt like I had to follow up on it because yeah. my boss said I had to yeah. you know <laughs> um and so I found this migraine specialist and I uh, went and did all of the like tests. I, oh, I should say my I, the migraines that I get are vestibular migraines. Okay. So a lot of the time the main symptom that I have isn't pain. It's just being really, really dizzy mm-hmm. or having other like vertigo kind of symptoms. And so I went and saw this like vestibular uh, specialist and he basically concluded that my migraines were caused by one of the little fluid-filled tubes in your inner ear um, having a leak in it and he gave me the like his this diagnosis and his evidence for why that was the case and the evidence was that I told him that sometimes when I do parkour training that involves lots of upper body stuff that I'll get a migraine the next day and that I thought it had something to do with um, like tightness in my shoulders yeah which it totally did but his diagnosis was bullshit oh interesting yeah so he was like when you're exerting yourself, um, you're putting so much pressure in in your inner ear that it's squeezing some of the fluid out of the little little tube. And I was like, okay, fair. But I've also actually done um, Olympic style powerlifting where you specifically hold your breath and exert yourself as much as you can in order to be able to lift greater amounts of weight. Yeah. And that never makes me dizzy the next day. So. I feel like it cannot be this thing that you just said. And he completely disregarded the fact that the evidence that I just gave, com- like his diagnosis and that piece of evidence are completely incompatible. Yeah. I could not possibly have the thing that he was saying. And and he said that the only treatment for it is to have surgery on your inner ear, which is inside your skull. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Yeah, and like 30% success rate. Surgery inside your skull. Oh, my God. And it would have meant that I wouldn't be able to scuba dive ever again, which is a thing that I had, like, at the time just got into and was really yeah. excited about. And it would have made air travel a uh, higher risk as well. Like, I would have had a risk of some complication if I flew. And I was like, no, I'm not never traveling again and never scuba diving again in order to have someone cut inside my skull for a condition that I've had my entire life that I, I know how to cope with. Like, it sucks. But no. Yeah. Also, I do not think that this surgery would even help because I don't think that this diagnosis is valid at all. And I was just like, no, this guy was super like the epitome of the like smug doctor who thinks that because he's the doctor, he's the most genius person in the world and that you can't possibly understand. And I, I like I'd done human bile as part of my undergrad. And so when he was explaining all of the inner ear stuff to me, he was putting it in real layman's terms and I would respond back to be like mm, yes here is technical name for the thing because I know what you're talking yeah. about you know the thing that you do they're like please don't baby me I know what I'm talking about and good doctors yes. pick up on that and they're like yes okay great I can use technical terms this guy nah so what happens next after in the all <laughs> of this so he insisted that I needed to have the surgery and I was oh. like no I, I can promise you that even if your diagnosis is correct I don't want this surgery but he did say that I would need to have an MRI to confirm his diagnosis and I was like well I can't afford an MRI yeah. but sure put me on a on a wait list for a for a public system MRI yeah and like two Three years later, I got an angry letter from the hospital saying, you haven't turned up for your last two appointments. You're going to be taken off this wait list. And I was like, excuse me, I have not at any point received any information. I didn't even know that that was the hospital that I was on the wait list for. What? And so I think I phoned them up or, yeah, I must have phoned because that was the only way to deal with it. Yeah. And... Also, like, what the hell? How did they manage to send me? I know, I was just about to say. Somehow they had the same address that I'd had literally the entire time I'd lived in Perth. Yeah. The same phone number and they had that information and yet they were angry at me that they hadn't sent me appointment letters. And so I managed to get another appointment uh, with this ear, nose and throat specialist and I had to, like, see him first so that he could approve me for an MRI. And I turn up at the hospital for this appointment and the uh, the, the previous specialist, the shit specialist, mm-hmm. is, is there in the room, which <gasps> made me really happy. It was, yeah, I was really glad he was there because, like, the most cursory explanation of my symptoms and 
then the hospital specialist immediately was like, oh, well, it's very clear to me that it's it's this and it is not this. And it was so validating that the shit specialist had to sit there while while the other guy was like, no, it's definitely, definitely not the thing that you said. Oh, my God. Um, and so how this ties back into endo is I had not mentioned anything about the pill or about oh and maybe I had mentioned that my migraines had gotten worse when I went on the pill yeah and he asked me like apropos of nothing what are your periods like do you have other period symptoms because it's clear to me that your migraines are hormonal so it, it wouldn't be surprising if you have other symptoms and I'm like oh actually yes and told him about my uh, pelvic pain and um, other like period symptoms that I had so that was literally the first time that a uh, a medical professional of any kind recognized that I had symptoms that were greater than just a little bit of period pain. Wow. Yeah. And was that specialist able to refer you on to a, what type of specialist? A gynecologist? Lol, get ready for this. Okay, I'm ready. Whew, deep okay. breaths. So ENT, ear, nose, throat specialist, said he wanted me to see an endocrinologist. Endocrinologist, that's the word that I was looking yep. for. And I was like, yep, great. I'd love that. That's kind of what I've been gunning for this whole time is clearly my hormones are fucked because it was synthetic hormones that caused all of this in the first place. Great. And so he said he would refer me for an uh, endocrinologist at the same clinic. Um, and I got an appointment letter for, you know, whatever it was, a, a month or two later. And I, I turned up at the clinic expecting to see an endocrinologist, but it was the ENT again. And he was like, oh, have you seen the endocrinologist? Like, no, this is, I, I just got a letter saying that this is when my, my appointment was scheduled. I assumed that this was going to be seeing the endocrinologist. He looked like pissed, not at me, but pissed that it was a waste of his clinic hours. It was a waste of my time. and had to take time off work to drive down to Fremantle to go to the hospital. And there was nothing that either of us could do there was no way to move forward until I'd seen the endocrinologist so um on my way out I went and spoke to reception and was like yeah so you know what happened they referred me and they told me that I'd have to phone during certain hours to speak to whoever whatever so I phoned back and was like yep so ENT he wants me to see the endocrinologist please can I make an appointment with the endocrinologist or can you send me out an appointment card and they said no ENT can't refer you to an endocrinologist. I was like, okay, all right then. ENT can refer you to a gynecologist. Only a gynecologist can refer you to an endocrinologist. Okay, fine, sure. Send me to a gyne. That's fine. Gyne is totally relevant to my symptoms anyway. If I have to see one to get to an endocrinologist, that's, we'll do that. So I got another appointment card. I turned up and it was the ENT again. No, <laughs> you're like, joking. Like, what is this? This is such a fucking waste of time for everyone. So I was in the hospital and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go speak to the, the reception again and, and find out. And I went and I'm like, okay, so ENT wanted me to see endocrinologist. I was told ENT can't refer to endocrinologist. ENT referred me to gynecologist so that gynecologist can refer to me to uh, endocrinologist. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. ENT can't refer you to gynecologist. Oh, my God. And then uh, this was when the uh, Fiona Stanley Hospital was being built. In, in Perth at the time. And so like a bunch of the stuff that was happening at the Fremantle Hospital was being transferred to the Fiona Stanley Hospital. So I got told that I, there would be like a six month wait time. Oh my God. And then I think maybe, must, must've been over six months that elapsed and I didn't hear anything. And then I ended up leaving Perth and never heard anything from any, any of them again. Wow. I think that whole process, like not including the wait time from the migraine specialist to seeing the ENT, not including that. I think the whole thing took about 18 months and then nothing. Wow. Yeah, so that was fun. So when did you eventually end up seeing a specialist? So in the meantime, I had finished my honours and I decided that if I wanted to do a PhD, I might come back and do one, but that now was the chance to try and pursue circus as a career. Um, And so I had auditioned for and gotten into a circus school in the UK I decided that I wanted to do that rather than moving to Melbourne because uh, it seemed like if I'm going to leave Perth, I might as well get to travel. Yeah. Um, so I went to the UK. I ended up only being there for about three months because the course that I went to do, frankly, sucked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and 
while I was there, my symptoms got just a whole shitload worse. I don't know whether it was the cold of the UK. I don't know whether it was that my mental health suffered and it made it harder to to like cope with my pain or if it was something to do with travel because I know that there's something about like jet lag that can ah, interesting. cause you to like you, if you if you travel across time zones you're likely to get your period like out of sync oh uh-huh. wow yeah which happened I got my period three times in five weeks which was not a fun time no and then I came back to Australia and was like okay well I'm going to move to Melbourne because better options for circus yeah. and it felt like if I went straight back to Perth that, that would be admitting defeat yeah um so I came to Melbourne and literally the first thing I did was I went to a bulk billing GP. At this point, I was like, I'm pretty damn certain I have endometriosis. I just need a doctor to like believe me and listen. Yeah. So I went to a bulk billing service around the corner from where I was staying, yeah, like three days after arriving in Melbourne and said, I'm pretty sure I have endometriosis. I can tell you all about my symptoms, but what I need is to see an endocrinologist and or a gynecologist. Can you refer me? And the lovely bulk billing GP was like, yes, all of your symptoms definitely sound like endometriosis. I will immediately refer you. Okay. I never saw that GP again, but a friend of mine did keep seeing him because he was actually great. Yeah. Cool. You ready for the next fucked up story? Okay. Bring it on. I'm ready. So also at this point in time, I had realized that part of my hesitance to find a good doctor was that I uh had gender dysphoria which I hadn't quite clocked as gender dysphoria because yeah um like it's I guess a bit of a niche sort of experience there's not really a lot of people talking about what it is actually like yeah and there's all of the narratives around transness that's basically like I always knew that I was this gender and Mm -hmm. when you're non-binary there's not really any of that around because Uh, Or at least, you know, growing up in the 90s, there was not a lot of um, exposure to uh, non-binary people. So the fact that I didn't have this sense of I wish I was a man or I believe that I've always been a man, like there was, I didn't know what my, what those feelings were. I did know that when I went on the, the pill at 18, that having my breasts grow bigger was really, really upsetting for me. And I didn't really know why that was so upsetting. Yeah. So by the time I got to Melbourne, I was like, oh, wait, I'm trans. Um, yep. And I realized that the risk of any type of hormonal medication, not only was I worried about how it might affect my endo, but I was also like, well, if there's any risk of things causing feminization, that that would be really upsetting for me. Yeah. But I also was really worried about finding a doctor who would like respect that and not just believe that it's a thing but also understand that no it wouldn't be worth risking feminized changes to my body even if it might help my pain yeah that they they wouldn't be worth it Mm -hmm. so I got to see this endocrinologist at the Alfred and she I described my my migraines and I described my my pelvic pain and other like menstrual symptoms and the whole story mm-hmm. and she said to me neither of these are endocrinology issues <laughs> I know right <laughs> well then like, why were you even referred like what the hell it just, like I don't know how you possibly come to the conclusion that hormonally triggered triggered migraines and period symptoms and those things getting worse by going on the pill that that those are not endocrinology issues like they they literally are. And like, what are you supposed to do with that information now? Right. Um, she did tell me that I, I should see a gynecologist um, and said she would refer me to one and then didn't. But on the, on the plus side, like at least by this point in time, I had understood that I was right. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. that was gaslighting and, and negligence. And so I kind of left that like, upset that I hadn't got anywhere with it but at least I was no longer in this position of of maybe believing that yeah. that they were right yeah like way back when I was at uni having a doctor tell me that it's normal to have painful periods I'd like just I'd, I'd come to this conclusion that maybe actually my idyllic periods were just wildly uncommon yeah. and that what I was experiencing with the onset of my endo symptoms was actually what was like quote-unquote normal and yeah. that 
that I was just the the one selfish person who wanted like perfect periods and that everyone else who has periods just has to put up with them being shit. Yeah. Um, so at least I wasn't, yeah, there anymore. And you eventually see a gynecologist then? Uh, I didn't through that, like I didn't get a re- referral there. What happened instead was that I found a um, trans specialised clinic, which is completely on the other side of the city from where I live. And it's like an hour and a half on public transport to get there. Yeah. But whatever, they're trans specialised. Even the reception staff, like some of them are trans as well. Several of the, the doctors are, are trans. Like it's a beautiful place to go. Yeah. Really very validating. The, the intake forms do ask you for your legal name, but like at the bottom of the form and at the top of the form, it asks you for your your preferred name yeah and so that was yeah much better and the the GP that I got to see has you know both trans specialization and endo specialization amazing so because I was very 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 poor I apart from this one private clinic which actually was bulk billing me anyway but Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have any money for for private system stuff so my GP helped me go through jumping through all the hoops that you need to do to do things through the public system. So the first thing was like a transvaginal ultrasound, um, which showed up nothing, which was to be expected. Yeah. But sometimes a transvaginal ultrasound will show, at least it can't show that it's endo, but it can show that there's lesions or adhesions or something going on. Yeah. Mine didn't. So the next step was to get put on a wait list for a laparoscopy, mm-hmm. which was then another, I think, two years between... Wow. I got put on that wait list and when I finally got to see someone. And so when you get the laparoscopy, Mm -hmm. that can be to diagnose endometriosis, which is what you had, I'm assuming. Yeah. When you're diagnosed with endometriosis, was there a sense that like things would change from this moment onwards? Yeah. So, yeah. So everything I'd seen and heard suggested that um, laparoscopy is the only way to to formally diagnose that's that's fine I guess mm-hmm. and that it's the only like quote-unquote treatment for it as well to do either excision or ablation yeah. even though there's like a bunch of evidence that no one should do ablation because ablation is a shit option anyway and that once I got that formal diagnosis that then there would be like more options for for treatment slash management so I was kind of under the impression that until I had that formal diagnosis. No, there was nothing else to do other than try the Implanon and try the Marina, yeah. which I did and didn't have a great time with either. Yeah. And so it sort of felt like uh, I was just in this waiting pattern until I had the laparoscopy, except that my my laparoscopy uh, experience was, yeah, pretty, pretty traumatic. Yeah. As I say, I think it was about... 18 months before I got to see, I got like a, a consultation. Yeah. In that consultation, I said to them, like, I'm, I'm doing a, a degree in, in circus. Uh, circus is my my main priority. Like, the reason that I want to pursue this is because my symptoms are interfering with my circus training. So I don't want to do this surgery if it's going to impact my training. Yeah. And I was told six weeks recovery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... I discussed it with the with the doctor I was having a consultation with, like, you know, what sort of things I would be capable of doing at what points in time, whether it would be like a safe option for me to 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 go ahead with the surgery. So when I finally what was it? It was like just under twelve months later that I got a phone call on I think it was like a Thursday, um, or something like that. In my in my school holidays, like it was end of start of January um, and I got this phone call saying there's been a cancellation and so we're offering you a, a surgery appointment on, on this date. Wow. The date was four business days later. <gasps> oh my god that's a lot that's not a lot of time to prepare. Yeah no and it was the Monday of the orientation period for my Bachelor of Circus Arts so oh. I'd done my finished my cert for yeah and was yeah getting getting ready to do my bachelor. So I didn't have very long to like make the decision, but they did tell me that I'd be taken off the waiting list if I refused this last minute appointment. Okay. So an ultimatum essentially. Um, So I, it was like either have the surgery now or it's going to be another two years wait list. And as I say, the, the doctor I'd consulted with had 
had basically implied that I would be able to continue doing circus just, you know, six weeks of, of recovery. And part of, part of the reason that I, like, I was really obviously very conflicted, but part of the reason that I felt like I had to do it at that point was that having already done my cert four, I had this like, you know, the, the like illusion of control thing that, that the, um, non-disabled people want to act like you're not doing enough to look after your own health because then they get to feel like it won't happen to them. So I experienced a lot of that, um, in my training environment, like people who either just didn't believe me that I had the symptoms that I had, or they did believe me, but then they thought that that meant that I shouldn't be doing circus or they thought that I was using it as an excuse, or they thought that I wasn't doing enough to try and fix my own problems. Um, and so I felt like if I, turned down the surgery and people at, at, uh, in my training environment found out mm-hmm. that they would think that that was in like evidence that I wasn't doing enough. Yep. So I went ahead with the surgery. I was told to arrive at 7am. My partner had to drop me off and he's a tradie. So his work starts at like seven. So he dropped me off at 6.30 at the hospital at, I think it was about 11.45. I was still sitting in the, in the waiting room. The only person who'd come to see me was someone who addressed the whole group of people waiting as ladies, which is like my most hated of all gendered terms. Like even, even if I were cis, like, do you think that a person with shaved parts of their head and like green hair and wearing all men's clothing, do you think that that person wants to be referred to as ladies? Like, no. Anyway, so several other patients had arrived after me, not just after the, the time that I was told to arrive, but like much later in the day, you know, 9, 10, 11. And then the doctors would come in or the nurses would come and get them and take them off oh. their surgery. And I was still sitting there, 11.45. I've never had surgery before. Yeah. Haven't had any water since 9 p.m. the night before, even though I've had several surgeries since then. And I've never been, I've never had that bigger, like, yeah. no water time. And it's January, so it's yeah. fucking hot. And everything about this is stressful. And... And a couple of weeks before this, a friend of mine had had a surgery and had had an allergic react, like an anaphylactic reaction to the um, anesthetic and had needed something like 40 shots of adrenaline to not die. Holy shit. Not to make that about me, but like those were all of the things that were happening in my head Yeah. while I was sitting there waiting and being completely ignored. Um, so yeah, doctor comes to get someone else and I like, burst out crying and they're like what's going on and I'm like well I've been here since 7 a.m and it's nearly midday and no one's told me what's happening yeah um so they, they took me through to a like private room and told me that it would still be a while yet until I went into my surgery I think it was about 2 p.m when they finally came to like put the gown on and talk me through what was going on is that normal um no yeah like why what why be there at 7am then? Yeah. So <laughs> when I've told this story to um, to medical professionals in Melbourne since then, they know which hospital it was. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Right, and I was about yep. to be wheeled in. I can't remember who it was that said something to me. I, I said something about it being 18 months since I'd been put on the, the waiting list. No, it was more than that, like including the for the consult as well. I, like I said, how long it had been over two years since I, since I got put on the waiting list. He said to me, oh, it should have just been about, it's usually about 10 months. Like, okay, cool. That's, that's really helpful. Thanks. I'm so glad that it should have been less bad than it was. Yeah. And then, yeah, they, they took me in. I woke up after my surgery, very, very groggy because they had to use a particular anesthetic that makes you less likely to be nauseous because gynecological procedure assigned female at birth and uh, my history of migraines and nausea all all things that mean that the regular anesthetic might have made me throw up okay. and you don't want to be throwing up after you've just had abdominal surgery. Oh yeah, of course. So I got woken up really out of it. And again, I've had several surgeries since then and woken up from other anesthetics just fine. Yeah. And the nurse told me to go see if I could pee. I came back and said, yep, success. I did. I peed. And they were like, okay, we well, can go now. And like li- literally that was the only interaction I had. I was like, do I get my diagnosis? Do I get to speak to the surgeon who just operated on me are you going to tell me they had told me beforehand that they if they find endo that they would try and remove what they could and that they would use whichever technique the surgeon preferred which like 
in hindsight, obviously means ablation because if they were going to do excision, they would have an excision specialist. Right. And ab- ablation is like, you know, what it sounds like. It's just burning off the bits of endo, which, yeah. So there was a study that came out earlier this year, late last year. I don't know what is time. Yeah. That showed that for some large proportion of, of people with uh, who have uh, surgeries to remove endo, that the surgery causes more pain than leaving the endo there in the first place. Wow. And all, all of the like vice and junky articles referencing this study were like, finally, someone does one single bit of research into endo and finds like, yeah. No and so, yeah, that was very much my experience. I, yeah, didn't, didn't get my diagnosis in the hospital. They gave me a, a letter and said, or like an envelope and said, that it was for my GP and obviously I opened it immediately. Yeah. And it said it was like a carbon copy piece of paper that had in scrawled handwriting, primary diagnosis, endometriosis, secondary diagnosis, dysmenorrhea. I was like, cool, that's like, thanks. What great information. They told me I had to see my GP to get the details and implied that I should see her within the next week. So I assumed that I would be capable of doing that yeah and yeah a week later I was still barely able to walk to the toilet and back to bed but I still was really desperate to find out what had happened so I like trekked the hour and a half each way out to see my GP and when I got there she asked me how it had how it went for more details because she had not received any details from the hospital oh my god yeah (laughs) She tried to request the details and they didn't send her anything. Um, and so she called me and said that when I had my six-week post-op at the hospital to basically demand that, that they send my, my file to her. And when I said that I was still like in a lot of, like obviously post-op pain, that's to be expected, but that it felt like my endo symptoms themselves were worse yeah, and so she she told me to ask about GnRH agonists, which is what's worth gonadotropin releasing hormone, and it's the hormone that makes the other hormones right. Really do. <laughs> yeah, and so if you block that, it causes a, a chemical form of menopause, and it is used as a treatment in endo. It's definitely a last option um and it's not a great option no one wants to go through menopause in their 20s yeah but my gp basically said like i don't know enough about this these doctors should i want you to ask about it just find out what they have to say yeah so i went for my six week post-op still in like just oh fuck loads of pain having been told that at six weeks i would be like most of the way recovered and I waited for two hours to go into my appointment, which was already a like pretty bad time. And the waiting room for the the Royal Women's Hospital Clinic at Sandringham is like the most grossly feminized environment ever. And I was just sitting there amongst like pregnant couples. And I'm pretty sure they had the sound on on the TV and the TV was playing like the a farmer wants a wife or like some shit oh like Oh my god, like, yeah. You know, like, aggressively heterosexual and aggressively cis-centrist and like yeah just a really really uncomfortable environment for me and then you had to spend two fucking hours in this place yeah yeah and I finally get in to see I'm expecting my my surgeon Mm. but it's a surgical registrar and she would maybe be in her like 50s or 60s and just has that like severe church woman look to her like wearing a wearing a crucifix and it's not just a crucifix but it's the one that's got the the Jesus body on it yeah, and like yeah, yeah I have religious friends it's not the religion that's the problem but there are certain ways of expressing it that come across as red flags yeah. and she opened my file like clearly for the first time opening my file and couldn't read the surgeon's handwriting oh my god and kept using young lady terms even though every time I'd been to this hospital I'd said to them I am not a woman I am a trans person I am non-binary please change your system so that my letters don't all come to miss please please change this please like even to the point where they'd put on my file like sex as indeterminate which is technically an intersex category and not the same as being trans but like oh look I'll take it if it means that they're not going to call me young lady but she obviously still did and when I said to her that I was still in a lot of pain 
um, and that didn't feel like the surgery had helped in any way. She said, oh, well, there's nothing else we can do then. And I said that my GP had requested, like this, I literally worded as my GP requested that I ask you about GnRH agonists. And she laughed, rolled her eyes and said, oh no, we don't offer things like that to girls your age. <gasps> I was 28 at this time. Oh my like, fucking God. Misgendering aside, I was no girl. I was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And then she proceeded to talk about hysterectomy. And I was like, I didn't ask about hysterectomy. I asked about GnRH agonists. I know that hysterectomies don't cure endometriosis. It can exist outside of the uterus. I understand this. I don't think she did, but she just kept saying that I couldn't have a hysterectomy. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not fucking asking for a hysterectomy. Yeah. But also literally if I was, you shouldn't default to no. Yeah. And I, I, so I said, like, I, I was kind of checking out of the appointment at this point already, like yeah. just whatever, but I did try and defend myself somewhat by saying I'm really not interested in my fertility. I don't care about having children. I don't want to have children. The idea of being pregnant repulsed yeah. me. And she said, oh, well. And, oh, and actually, I think I said specifically, not just that I don't want children, but that even if I did want children, the possibility of improving my pain would still be worth it if it risked my fertility. And she said, oh, well, you say that, you say that now, but six months down the track, what if you meet a nice man and he wants children? Ah, I just six can't. Months. I just can't with this lady. Like, I, again, I was in the first year of my Bachelor of Circus Arts, like six months down the track, I would have been in the middle of like <laughs> doing a circus degree so that I could go out into the industry and work in circus. Like none of that is particularly compatible with immediately having children. Not that yeah. people who have children in the circus industry are doing anything wrong. That's great. Not for me though. No, thank yeah. you. Also, like, at that time I had two partners. Yeah. Neither of whom were planning to have children with me because I don't want them. Yeah. And because it's, it's kind of up to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, right? Like, literally even even if the, my, my, my current, my live-in partner, he doesn't want kids. Neither of us want kids. We definitely never want kids. And then the other person who I was dating at the time was actually planning to have children with someone else. Like, yeah. that's fine. He wants kids. He can do it. Not with me. So yeah, I definitely a hundred percent just checked out at that point. It was just yeah. smiled and nodded or don't probably didn't smile. Just nodded until the appointment was over. I would also like to point out that GnRH agonists don't permanently make you infertile. You are infertile for the duration of taking them. When right. you cease the treatment, which you do because they are not a long-term, you're like, they're a disruption. Mm -hmm. When you cease the treatment, your fertility will return to normal within 18 months. The same as taking the pill. Yeah. And actually, GnRH agonists are used in some forms of cancer treatment to preserve fertility. Like, yeah. that's how completely misinformed the doctor that I was speaking to was. Yeah. Like, it was just, yeah, totally fucked. And it wasn't six weeks recovery, was it? I think it would have been 18 months later, I had to drop out of my circus degree because my body was still fucked yeah I definitely think that I could have continued my degree if I'd had appropriate support okay like I, I think it's worth worth saying that it was definitely not just that my body was fucked it was also that the way I was being treated with my symptoms was, was basically like if you if, if you have a chronic illness then you shouldn't be doing the thing yeah the system wasn't built for yeah. someone experiencing these symptoms yeah exactly um and then it would have been yeah close to two years later that I finally found a pelvic floor physio who helped basically recover the damage that had happened from the surgery and so yeah finally the like best ever medical professionals that I found who helped me the most all they actually helped me with was fixing the damage that the medical system had done so that I could come back to a position of being able to cope with my symptoms how I had before I'd had the surgery. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You write a lot about pain and your relationship with pain on the getwellcircus.com blog and I'm going to link some of them in the show notes so people can yeah. go and have a read as well. In particular, there's one, it was really amazing the way that you described your pain and from that, I was assuming that pain was such a huge symptom or is such a huge symptom mm -hmm. for you. 
And I'm wondering now after seeing the physio and moving through all of this bullshit that you've literally had to go through to get to this point now in 2021, how does, how does your pain and how does having endometriosis feel for you? So my, yeah, like the whole, the whole story of, of how it came on, it was mild, uh, mild compared to what it got to bad periods that eventually became the week before my period would be kind of bad. And then the week of my period would be terrible. And then the week after my period would be pretty bad, which obviously doesn't sound like a whole lot of time between periods, especially when my cycle was anywhere between like 14 to 28 days. Yeah. And then prior to my laparoscopy, I found most of the time exercise helped, but there were occasionally things that I couldn't do specifically on like first, first day of period yeah. that they would trigger pain instead of alleviating it. And then after my laparoscopy, that was one of the big things was that it, it became everything yeah. would trigger yeah. it, but maybe not, uh, which is, it really just feels like your body gaslighting you. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely could tell that it was something that had happened during the surgery. And I was like, it's my pelvic floor. Like I can feel that it is like, yeah. I can't engage my core properly or engaging my core causes pain. Um, and so, yeah, I like really, really knew that I needed to see a pelvic floor physio. And and because, I mean, you're doing handstands all of the time. The yeah. core is the yeah. main part. I mean, not the, like it's one of it's a huge no, part it, of handstands. You have a, I'm pretty sure you have a understanding of how yeah, your like, body is. Pretty good understanding of how my body works. And like, I actually ended up with hip, ankle and shoulder injuries yeah. because my core wasn't working yeah. and my core wasn't working because my pelvic floor wasn't working. Yeah. And again, I could tell that all of these things were happening because the like underlying pelvic floor not working properly was causing all of these like knock on effects. And then eventually when I did get to see the pelvic floor physio and then things started to get a little bit better and I started to, so I had maybe 18 months between when I dropped out of my degree and when I finally started doing a little bit of gentle training again and 18 months of no training at all, really fucking sucked like yeah. it was my mental health coping mechanism it was my make my brain not think about bad things mm-hmm. like go to and also like a source of pleasure and joy but yeah I wasn't able to do any of that and so definitely that was a very bad mental health time and then when I finally started to be able to get things back together again it it actually really wasn't that long between my pelvic floor being functional and I got all of my fucking strength back. Wow. Like, and it, that part of what was so frustrating about it was that it was like maybe maybe six months from 18 months off training. And I'm not just talking about not training. I'm talking about like moving from the bed to the couch to the bed to the couch. Yeah. That's my whole life. So, yeah, lost all of, all of the strength that I tried to hold on to post-surgery. And then to just get this like tiny little push in the right direction. And I also got to see a pain specialized psychologist, which was also very, very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, within, within maybe like six to 12 months of that, I was back to building upon the strength that I had once had. Like I spent 18 months post surgery trying to get back to, to anything that resembled my previous strength. And I don't think I got to 30% of it. And then within Within six months of pelvic floor physio, I was probably back to 50% of it, even though I had 18 months off from training. Imagine if that could have just been offered to you. Right? Like, and I was asking. Right at the beginning, when you were seeing that post op doctor at six weeks. I was saying to them, like, like my pelvic floor feels like it's not working properly. I can't engage my core properly. Like, um, these things are happening what can we do about it? Please, I need help. And and it wasn't until I, I finally managed to fi- find this one really good pelvic floor physio. And the exercises she gave me were like the simplest thing in the world. Yeah. It was doing belly breathing to get my um, my pelvic floor to to not clench. And I was it was the elevator exercise, yeah. which is sequentially engaging your pelvic floor muscles like you're trying to use your vagina like an elevator. <laughs> It up yeah. in the middle and then back down again as well. The, the relaxation is definitely an important part of it. And literally, these two exercises that were the simplest thing in the world that I could do myself. I didn't even, I was like bad at, at scheduling time to do it. So when I would forget, I'd do the exercises while I was driving home from, from the gym or from handstand classes. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I'm actually 
doing really well pain wise at the moment. A combo of 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 those things being effective and uh, now being on testosterone and testosterone doesn't definitely help, yeah. but it might. Yeah. And I'm lucky. So like today is actually the first day of my period and I'm here having this conversation with you, which is not something that I could have done before now. So like, yes, definitely still have complex relationship with pain. I definitely don't have no pain, but my background level of pain is now at a point where I can just actually still live my life and do my training and, I've had to like unlearn and uninternalize a lot of ableism and yeah. productivity culture and bullshit that capitalism like forces into your brain. Yeah. But yeah, like I'm I'm actually doing all right. Wow, what an incredible story and thank you so much for sharing your whole journey with us all <laughs> today and everyone listening at home. <laughs> It's yeah, I very could oversharing. <laughs> I could honestly talk to you for hours, and I'm looking at the time, and I'm like, I said that this would be like 45 minutes of your time, and here I am still talking, you know. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I know a lot of people will get a lot out of listening to your story as well. So thank you. It's been fun. It's always cathartic getting to like vent about bad medical experiences. <laughs> And thank you for listening to another episode of That's So Chronic. And what an episode that was. If you have any thoughts or you just want to reach out, feel free to connect over on Instagram. I'm at That's So Chronic. And don't forget, everything Evie and I talked about today can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're new around here... Um, hello. Make sure you've pressed subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you never miss an episode. That also really helps That's So Chronic reach more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and, more importantly, hope.